This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. How would you like a 15% discount to my daily email, the stack of stuff, the show notes, discounts to the conference, all of that? All you need to do is text the word SHOW to 33777. You'll get the annual subscription with a 15% discount to my daily email. You'll get the stack of stuff, the links to the show notes, discounts to the conference, and so much more. All you have to do is text the word SHOW, S-H-O-W, to 33777. Text SHOW to 33777. Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's the third hour. It's Eric Erickson. I'm delighted to have you with me. The phone number here is 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. All right, Charlie and Philip, are you ready for it? You know, I did that entire monologue earlier where I referenced Philip in the Twilight Zone, and, and he didn't text, and so I'm wondering if he's actually at work today. Like, did he sneak out and go fishing? <laughs> All right, you two. Here's how we'll begin. So I grew up in Dubai. <laughs> it, if you've listened to the program for a while, you understand the joke. I do sometimes forget that people know this. But I did. I, I grew up in the Middle East. Um, when we were five, when I was five, when we, when I was five, uh, we moved uh, to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, moved back when I was 15 to Louisiana, and I uh, have a lot of friends who were from Dubai at the time. Some were uh, people who had fled Lebanon as it uh, descended into chaos. Others had, <laughs> I'm glad you were writing for me. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Millennials are so needy. <laughs> All right. Focus. So uh, one of my my friends, Amir, his uh, father and grandfather worked for the Shah of Iran. Uh, his father wound up in banking, and the grandfather was in the security service, and they wound up fleeing over the Ural Mountains into the Soviet Union uh, during the revolution uh, in 1979. Amir would have been three or four at the time. The family had to flee and made their way to Dubai. Wonderful people. Uh, some of my greatest memories are hanging out with, with friends who had fled Iran. They consider themselves Persian, not Iranian. And just super people. They they really are. But when I was a kid, I got to travel. Um, and, and as I got older, got to travel. Been to most of the Middle East. 
been to Oman, uh, been to Bahrain, been to Saudi Arabia, been to Egypt, been to Syria, uh, been to Jordan, uh, been to Kuwait. Um, briefly went into Iraq, but it doesn't really count because I went in there long. I've never been to Israel. I couldn't go to Israel growing up in the Middle East. You couldn't. You wouldn't be allowed back in the country. But have many fond memories. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, the Iranians tried to blow up my school. It was an American school in Dubai. They tried to blow it up for a time because hijackings were so bad. So living in Dubai, I, it, it was kind of a neat experience. If you took a field trip, it was to somewhere. Um, abroad, typically. So in sixth grade, my sister's class went to uh, Kenya. When I was in ninth grade, we went for over a week to uh, Greece and Turkey, the Greek islands. In fact, I remember we were landing in Kuwait on the way back to Dubai. Uh, the sun was coming up and you could see uh, Saddam Hussein's tanks all lined up at the border during military exercises. That's what they said they were doing. Uh, we got back. My dad's company decided all the Americans needed to pack up and leave. The situation was destabilizing, and my dad continued to go back and forth twenty every twenty eight days. We moved back to Louisiana when I was eight uh, when I was fifteen, but it was a heck of a way to grow up. I've still been to more countries than states. I've been uh, part, portions of uh, other than South America and the Antarctic. I've been to the rest of the continents, and some as I've gotten older and traveled by myself as well. Uh, but we went to Hong Kong when I was a kid. Um, I've been to Malaysia a lot. I've been to India, been to Pakistan. I've been all over Europe. Uh, I've been to Egypt. Um, it's, it, it, I, I just, it was, a, it was a fun way to grow up and, and then to travel further as I got older. I am fascinated by the Middle East. But it's a fascination that, that also comes with some uh, alarming concerns as we see uh, instability in the Middle East right now. And a lot of the instability, you need to understand this. I, I try to resist when it comes to a lot of foreign affairs and international relations, try to make partisan points because a lot of the issues abroad aren't really partisan. There are larger issues at stake. But the Biden administration has handled itself horribly when it comes to the Middle East. Uh, the Obama administration as well handled itself horribly, and much of the instability in the Middle East right now is instability that comes because of the policies of the Biden and the Obama administrations, in particular their dealings with Iran. We now know that some of the advisors whispering in the ears of Obama and Biden were actually on the Iranian payroll spies. They were influencing this, you know, if this was the Trump administration or this was the Bush administration and you had Iranian agents helping shape foreign policy that was more favorable to Iran, it would be a major international scandal. But it happened in the Obama and the Biden administrations and the media has largely been quiet about the uh, infestation of sympathizers to Iran, Iranian spies and agents on the payroll. But it's true. It really happened. 
The Obama administration, led by one of those people, decided to rethink Iranian policy because the arrogance of the Obama administration was always more than anything else that that he could do better than anyone else, that, that he saw the world more clearly. He saw the intersectional lines of the world, and Obama could do better than, than Bush, and he could do better than Clinton, and he could do better than Reagan, and he could do better than Carter. Everybody could. He could do better than anybody. It was a, There's a profound arrogance within Barack Obama that he could rethink the world and do differently. And one of the ways he thought to rethink the world was to rebuild relationships with Iran, but he was guided by people on Iran's payroll. And when Biden came into, when Trump came into office, he stopped it. And when Biden came into office, he picked it back up. And Joe Biden is in part responsible for the deaths of all the Israelis on October 7th. Joe Biden and Barack Obama both are in part responsible. Blood is on their hands. They funded Iran knowing Iran would fund terrorism. In fact, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal today. In mid-2019, Israel's military used a precision strike on a narrow street to kill a Hamas commander whom it called Iran's money man in Gaza. The commander ran an off-the-book system of remittances in which trusted agents shuttled physical cash and goods across borders to settle customers' balances. This so-called Hawala network, which is known in the Middle East, funneled tens of millions of dollars in financing from Iran to Hamas's military wing. His replacement, a Palestinian businessman named Zuhair Samlak, changed strategy to evade the Israelis. He turned to digital currencies. Samlak's money exchanges increasingly sent digital tokens to operators abroad to settle Hawala balances, according to current and former Israeli law enforcement officials, along with former U.S. officials. Crypto sent to the digital wallets controlled by Hamas-affiliated money exchanges could also be swapped for cash at their offices in the Gaza Strip. This pivot helped Hamas and affiliates such as the Palestinian Islamic Jihad to receive large sums from Iran during the two years that preceded the attacks on Israel. The official said it was an attempt to use a new financial technology to lessen the risks of moving physical money and goods. They used Bitcoin. But the Bitcoin in and of itself had to be purchased. And where did the purchasing come from? It came from the Obama administration releasing money to Israel, to Iran and then the Biden administration releasing further funds to Iran. It came from the Biden administration allowing Iran to sell oil. It came from the Biden administration turning a blind eye. Iran has pulled in a lot of money. It has kept its people starving in poverty and instead used the money to fund Hamas and Hezbollah to fund its nuclear program and to fund its military. And Joe Biden and Obama were complicit in that. Iran has also funded Hezbollah far more than, than Hamas. Hezbollah has set up shop and taken over Lebanon, and Hezbollah is a puppet regime of Iran. Hezbollah is also a terrorist organization. It was Hezbollah, actually, that, that tried to blow up my school when I was a kid, funded by the Iranians. They've been doing this for quite a while. They're now essentially, just as, as Hamas is the government of Gaza, 
Hezbollah is basically the government of, of Lebanon. They control everything. The Germans have told German citizens they probably need to get out of uh, Lebanon. There was an Israeli attack in Lebanon killing uh, one of the Hamas's leaders who was hiding there. Hezbollah is probably going to start doing military activities on the northern border with Israel in response. Iran will fund it all. Iran is also funding the Houthi. When I was a kid, in the 1980s, there were two Yemens. There was South Yemen and there was North Yemen. South Yemen was friendly with the West. North Yemen was communist, tied to the Soviet Union. After the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, over time, they have merged into just one country, the country of Yemen. And the Iranians have been funding Houthi rebels in a civil war to control Yemen. The Iranians... They don't care about the people of Yemen. They care about the strategic opportunity of controlling shipping access to the Red Sea. This is the most bizarre and asinine part of all of this. The Biden administration is allowing a proxy group of pirates and rebels funded by Iran to disrupt global shipping patterns. The majority of global shipping traffic is now steering clear of the Red Sea and going all the way around Africa, adding weeks to their trips to Europe because the Biden administration won't just blow up the Houthi rebels. We have engaged in some sort of alleged uh, coalition with Europe, but half the Europeans involved don't want to actually be named. And while all of this is happening, ISIS is rearing its head again. ISIS is responsible for the bombing in Iran, two suicide bombers. ISIS doesn't like Iran for religious reasons. ISIS is Sunni Muslim and militantly so. The Iranians are Shiite Muslims. Uh, they have philosophical, theological disagreements. Very fifth century of both of them. And uh, they don't like each other. And there have been a series of skirmishes along the Iranian border, particularly with Pakistan, because the Islamic State uh, has set up shop in western uh, Afghanistan and in western Pakistan. Uh, the Taliban has largely made peace with ISIS, allowing them to come in, much to the chagrin of the uh, Iranians. And so now you got the Iranians you go with this terror organization. On its eastern side, you've got them fighting Israel. This just means Iran and the Russians and others are going to be working together more collaboratively. They don't, and By the way, Russia doesn't like ISIS as well. Even though it's collaborated with ISIS in Africa to destabilize uh, regimes the Americans have propped up, Russia doesn't like ISIS. Russia views ISIS as a threat. And all of this is going to push closer relations to Iran and Russia. All of this comes from the Obama administration, all of this instability comes from the Obama administration deciding it could do better than anyone else and showing just absolute arrogance and naivete in trying to handle Iran and being infiltrated through its arrogance. It couldn't see it coming, Iranian agents. And now the fallout comes to all of us, and the Biden administration is incapable of dealing aggressively with it. The Middle East is beginning to destabilize, and many of our former allies and current allies 
are looking more and more to China to settle the problems, and that just hurts our geostrategic interests, all because Joe Biden got buttered over uh, the uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the Khashoggi matter and decided he was going to show him up. Well, that guy showed us and invited Xi Jinping to come to Saudi Arabia and begin the realignment of the Middle East against our interests. It's all because of Obama and Biden. Greetings and welcome. It is Eric Erickson, the phone number 877-973-7425. By the way, if you weren't here the first hour, I outlined a series of national security threats that we've got to start thinking about. Number one being the national debt. Uh, We're pushing that out uh, that entire hour as a video monologue on Substack. So if you haven't subscribed, go to data tech, or I'm sorry, text the word data to 33777, text data to 33777, and you can subscribe and get that. Um, What is this? Wants to know, uh, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, um, oh, (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, well. (laughs) No, I can't, no, no, I can't share with you that, but that just actually made me fall out laughing. Uh, my goodness gracious, uh, maybe they'll take a chance and just listen. Okay, we got to move on to other stuff. Uh, we actually do. Uh, names uh, now being released in the Jeffrey Epstein file. Um, let's see, who do we have? Uh, Donald Trump, Michael Jackson, Kate Blanchett, Leonardo DiCaprio, among the high-profile names revealed in the recent uh, actions. You've got Prince Andrew, who we knew. You've got uh, Bill Clinton, who we knew, Stephen Hawking. My goodness gracious, you've got Stephen Hawking on the list. Epstein emailed Maxwell to deny claims Professor Stephen Hawking had taken place in an under... What? I'm sorry. Pause. (laughs) My gosh. Apparently, he was on Epstein Island, rolling around there before the windows sound you make when you turn it off. Michael Jackson was there. Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Blanchett, Bruce Willis, Donald Trump, David Copperfield. Um, some of these, of course, are, are names that, that people have long known. Uh, other names are going to start rolling out here, but Stephen Hawking does not compute my goodness gracious poor man banging away at his keyboards on Epstein's Island mm, 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 mm. <laughs> oh my gosh there are so many jokes that could be made that we should not make there we need to move on to other stuff in fact we need to move to Iowa Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis battling it out for second place in Iowa uh, some of the, the county polls there surveying county Republican chairs. They believe that uh, Haley has been surging there. The DeSantis campaign, uh, not. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna figure all this stuff out when we come back. What's actually happening on the ground in Iowa? Uh, can DeSantis actually have an impact there? Uh, and what happens if Donald Trump wins? Well, obviously it's over. But um, we should analyze this. They're going to have town halls in uh, Iowa tonight on CNN between DeSantis and Haley. And then, of course, a debate between the two later. Greetings. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Welcome those of you in Kansas City. 
Um, we've gotten some phone calls from people saying, uh, who are you? Why are you on the radio? Well, I'm Eric Erickson. It's my show. Thank you for listening. All right. Before I get to Iowa, because honestly, the story's kind of, it. well, I, I'm just, I mean, you look at the data, you kind of know what's going to happen. Although the DeSantis team makes a persuasive case that they can still win it. I'm, I'm not so sure. Before we get there, though, uh, I want to go to Dave. Dave, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, how are you, Eric? Good. What's going on? Hey, uh, enjoy your show. So regarding the border, I lived there in McAllen, Texas, where Trump's gone several times. I lived there from 89 to 95. And as you know, this this border problem is nothing new. It was a problem back then. I was very vocal about it at that time to friends and family. Of course, there was no coverage of it from a national level, so nobody really talked about it. Uh, the scale of the problem wasn't like it is now, but it was still there. There was a lot of drug trafficking, and there was a fair amount of people coming across the border. My point is, because it's gotten so much media attention in recent years, I think it's made it, made it worse. The world knows about the open border and I think that's brought the people in. So my point is, let's do something about it or let's be quiet because this problem has been there for decades. So Yeah, and it, it has gotten worse. That is a good point. You put a spotlight on it and, and tell people it's, it's easy to get across. It's not as easy as some believe, but yet it's easy enough that hundreds of thousands are doing it. Uh, you pay the right uh, cartel member, you can get across. And uh, there, there's actually news happening right now on this, Dave. Let, let me let me pivot real quick. Uh, Manu Raju is on CNN saying this, that senators are trying to come up with a deal to find a compromise on this, led by Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut and Kristen Sinema of Arizona on the Democratic side with Republicans. However, House Republicans insist H.R. 2 has to be the way forward. H.R. 2 would do more to secure the border. So the Democrats' proposal is essentially uh, we'll process people quicker and get them out of the country quicker. The Republican solution is uh, disincentivize them coming into the country in the first place, which makes a whole lot of sense. Disincentivize them coming into the country at all, and yet they're not willing to, the Democrats aren't willing to do a common sense solution of securing the actual border. The idea of we're going to allow people to come into the country and we're just going to add higher new federal bureaucrats to process them quicker. You would save a lot of money in the long run if you just built the wall. Build a wall across the southern border and the upfront expense would be offset by the cost of not having to hire all the, the agents and attorneys and judges to process all the people over time. That seems to make the most sense. So obviously it's the one the Democrats don't want to do. The border issue is an issue in Iowa where Haley and DeSantis are battling it out. Um, there's a there's thinking on the ground among the politicos of Iowa, the Republicans, that... Nikki Haley is gaining on Ron DeSantis. This is from Seth Maskett, a professor of political science. 
um, at the University of Denver, headed into the first contest of the 2024 GOP presidential race. Donald Trump maintains a dominant lead, and Nikki Haley has eclipsed Ron DeSantis for second place. That's according to a new poll of Republican county chairs from across the country, with those seeking an alternative to Trump flocking to Haley rather than DeSantis in the final weeks before the Iowa caucuses. Among Republican chairs committed to a candidate, Trump has 37%, Haley 16%, and DeSantis 9%. The candidate who chairs are most vehemently against, Chris Christie. I began surveying county chairs nearly one year ago in an effort to track the so-called invisible primary, the crucial coordination and jockeying that occurs before anyone starts voting or caucusing, but which will do much to determine the eventual winner. County chairs are figures who play a key role in shaping the race. They are highly attentive to the party's internal dynamics and are influential in local Republican circles. They offer the kind of endorsements that candidates are eager to collect. They're also still close to the rank-and-file grassroots, and their shifts are likely to signal where the rest of the party is going. He's right on this, by the way. This is a good measure of what's happening on the ground. And Nikki Haley clearly has momentum. Now, full disclosure, I'm a friend. I like her. I'm not way I'm I'm not endorsing this. Let me, I'll I'll be very candid and honest with you, my listeners. I try never to hide anything from you and tell you exactly what I think. Here's what I think. I think the polling that shows that Nikki Haley can give uh, Joe Biden a run for his money more than any other Republican is true right now in the snapshot of right now, but the Democrats will destroy her, go after her in the way they would DeSantis or Trump. So she wouldn't do nearly as well as the polling suggests, but she'd do well. I think DeSantis would do very well against uh, Joe Biden. And I am in the minority, but I firmly believe Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden in 2024. He, Donald Trump, not my cup of tea, not my preference. I think that for him to win, you'll spend way more money, and that might cost us the Senate. Um, because in, in this is just this is a math calculation, by the way. Trump is spending most of his money on lawyers because of all the prosecutions. A lot of his campaign money going to fund lawyers, which means the RNC will have to spend more of their money on him, which means less money for Senate candidates and House candidates. So Trump can win, but at the expense of a real majority in the House and Senate, whereas DeSantis and Haley can stockpile money that's not going to lawyers for prosecutions, and therefore that would free up more resources to take the House and the Senate as well. And the GOP has a very good shot at taking the Senate if we play our cards right. That's my biggest concern with Trump. For, forget all my, my issues with character and, and uh, motive and, and, and everything else and policies and the people surrounding me, all, any of that stuff of which I have concerns. My number one concern with Donald Trump as the nominee is that if he is the nominee, and it looks like he will be, there will be fewer resources available to take the House and the Senate because more money will have to be spent to, to prop him up um, because he just doesn't. I mean, it's it's a money game. Advertising is money. Mail is money. Grassroots is money. And all of his money is having to go to fund the lawyers in these prosecutions. He'll have less time on the campaign trail because he'll be in court. Uh, time and money will go towards lawsuits and indictments. Uh, which means the RNC and the outside donors will have to spend more money to prop him up, which means they have less money to prop up House and Senate races. It is a numbers game. It is a money game. That being said, I think he can win. I think the Democrats who are trying to stack the deck for Trump are, are deluding themselves into thinking he can't win. Donald Trump is outperforming his own polling from 2016 and 2020. He's doing better than he ever has, and that should be a warning sign for the Democrats. Now, that's why I do think, though, that, that Haley or DeSantis are more viable because it'll be uh, less needful of donor and RNC money 
because they'll be able to raise it themselves. Between DeSantis and Haley, my thinking is straightforward. If DeSantis gets out tomorrow, all of the polling that has been done in this race, whether you believe the polling or not, your your, your measured estimate is, is coming either from the polling or from your own gut, and your gut should tell you what the polling is telling you. And that is if DeSantis gets out, most of DeSantis' supporters would go to Trump. So if DeSantis gets out, that helps Donald Trump. If Nikki Haley gets out tomorrow, most of her supporters would either go to DeSantis or stay home. If you're if you are supporting Ron DeSantis, you want someone like Trump, the anti-woke, puts points on the boards, battles the left. If you're with Nikki Haley, you want a complete change in vision and message. You want to go back to the old Republican Party. So those people will either go to DeSantis or they'll go to stop Trump or they'll just stay home and give it up, say a pox on both their houses. So the strategic advantage for DeSantis moving forward is more than for Haley moving forward. I don't see how when in South Carolina Nikki Haley is behind Trump that she can secure the nomination. The only path forward I see for both of them is for DeSantis to win Iowa and Haley to win New Hampshire. Haley's not going to win New Hampshire in large part because Chris Christie refuses to get out of the race. Chris Christie's supporters are not making the shift yet with him in the race. Maybe they will eventually. But if if Christie got out of the race, Nikki Haley and Donald Trump would largely be tied in New Hampshire. Just based on – and again, I realize you're all screaming, don't believe the polls, don't believe the polls. Okay, I, the only way I can judge the race – based on what's on the ground, is what the candidates and the polling say, and the candidates are watching the polls. So while all of you have decided you're smarter than the candidates, the candidates are paying attention to the polling. DeSantis has got to win Iowa. DeSantis has to win Iowa. I just think it's very foolish for the Haley campaign to be attacking DeSantis in Iowa because if DeSantis is taken out in Iowa, he drops out, and then that blows Nikki Haley out of the water. The thing that Haley should have done, her campaign should have done, I personally think, is they should have gone all in in New Hampshire and focused on South Carolina. DeSantis only has the bandwidth to go all in on Iowa, so let him. If DeSantis won Iowa, that then actually helps Haley in New Hampshire because it signals Trump is vulnerable. It doesn't really help DeSantis because he's kind of – he in, in and New Hampshire voters don't, to use Southern colloquialism, jihad together. They – DeSantis and New Hampshire voters aren't really on the same page. Haley's closer to them. That would allow Haley then and DeSantis to fight in South Carolina where Haley has an advantage because Haley was the former governor, but still Trump reigns supreme. If I had to call it, we are what? Um, we're 14 days, 12 days away from the Iowa caucus. No, we're 10, we're, we're 10 days away from the Iowa caucus now. If I had to call it, we're 11, thank you. We're 11 days away from the Iowa caucus. If I had to call it, I think Trump wins his first Iowa caucus. However, however, that's what the public opinion polling shows, and you all don't believe the public opinion polling. So let me throw you the DeSantis theory of the race. And he makes a compelling case. His campaign makes a compelling case. DeSantis is organized in He's got 1,500 precinct chairs. There are about 1,600 precincts, and DeSantis is organized in all but about 100 of them. A caucus is not a primary. You don't just show up and vote in a caucus. You go, you hear speeches, 
You participate. Unlike the Democratic caucus, you just vote for your guy and then you can leave. You don't go through, well, this guy doesn't have enough votes. Now you got to vote for a second person. It doesn't work that way on the Republican side. But DeSantis has 1,500 of the 1,600 caucuses organized, and he's got a ground game to take his voters. Now, this is where the DeSantis argument makes sense to me. When you survey Iowa voters who are Republicans who go to caucuses, keep in mind, someone can say they're going to go to the caucus. But if they've never been before, the odds of them getting out in the snow because it's going to be snowing on caucus night, the odds of them getting out in the snow and going actually is slim to none. Every campaign that's ever tried to get people to go to caucuses who's never gone to caucuses before winds up failing. So the DeSantis campaign is focused on people who've gone to caucuses before and say they're going to caucus again. And when you survey the people who have gone to Iowa Republican caucuses in the past, the overwhelming majority of them say they're voting for DeSantis. The people who actually caucus and have been to the caucuses say they're voting for DeSantis. Trump is in second place. If that holds, then yes, Ron DeSantis is going to win the Iowa caucus. And that does completely shake up the field. The problem here is you've got to pay attention to what's happening everywhere else. Never Back Down has kind of collapsed. Behind the scenes, the advisors and strategists are already stabbing each other in the back and grumbling about DeSantis. That looks like a campaign falling apart at the end. It doesn't look like a campaign winning. Look, you, you can be mad at me for telling you these things, but you need to at least, if you're a DeSantis reporter, the supporter, prepare for them. And the reason I say this is because I've run campaigns. I've been on campaigns. I've studied this stuff. I've, I've been a political analyst and a commentator. I've advised campaigns. I, and when you get to the end of the race and your super PAC has collapsed and your strategists are going off the or going on background to backbite and stab each other in the back, that's a campaign in disarray at the end. The question, however, is the ground game in Iowa because those are the national guys. What about the local guys in Iowa? If the local guys in Iowa for DeSantis can actually turn out DeSantis voters, he's going to win the Iowa caucuses. And if he does, it completely shakes up the fundamentals. But I don't think you can be as dismissive of polling as some of you are when all the polls, the good ones and the bad ones, all of them, suggest it's Trump's to lose. That may breed complacency by Trump supporters when it snows in Iowa. They say, yeah, he's got it in the bag tonight. I don't have to go. And then suddenly he loses. But these are real variables. You know, I, I got to just as an aside here, you do understand that the media, which is all of them on the verge of bankruptcy, would not continue to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on polls if they didn't think they were showing you what's on the ground. Some of you say the polls want you to believe something. They want to steer you some way. I'll tell you the, the tell in that and why it's not true is because the candidates aren't releasing counter narratives. Every time in every race, candidates release their own polling to dispute the public polling, and it is notable this may be the first Republican presidential primary where we are not seeing the candidates releasing their internals to dispute the public polling. It's happened every time. The Cruz campaign in Iowa did it. The Santorum campaign did it. The Huckabee campaign did it. The McCain campaign in New Hampshire did it. They all released their internals to show the public polling is not true. None of them are doing that this time, and every single one of them has a pollster, and I know most of those pollsters. And all of them are saying, what we're seeing is what they're seeing. Boy, I got to play all this exchange that's happened in the White House between an Al Jazeera reporter 
and uh, John Kirby, the co- uh, coordinator for the National Security Council. Yeah, Admiral, um, you said that the United States doesn't want a second front, um, and you also said that Israel has a right and responsibility to go after the Hamas leadership, but isn't, isn't the United States and the president, aren't they exactly widening and escalating this, given the fact that the U.S. is supporting uh, chasing Hamas leadership outside of Gaza. I mean, the fact that it's going into Lebanon, a sovereign nation. Well, again, your, your question is presuming an awful lot, and is presuming that I said things I didn't say. I, I'm not. Right I'm not confirming that the that the the Israelis took this airstrike. Um, I would refer you to them to speak to their military operations. I did. Nevertheless, I'm not confirming that they that they that they took this strike. They have a right and responsibility to go after Hamas leadership, and we expect that they'll do that in accordance with international law. Uh, nothing's changed about the. Oh, where'd that go? The outcome. Okay, so let me follow up on that then. Given the Red Sea patrols, uh, we knew in advance of those being set up that the Iranian defense minister said very clearly nobody can make a move in a region where we have predominance. The United States knew that, set it up anyway. Is that not being seen as a provocation? If you know that Iran sees that as a provocation, you take the action anyway. That's certainly turning things on their upside down, isn't it? Wouldn't wouldn't you consider provocation launching ballistic missiles and and drones at well, commercial? Wait, 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 targeting innocent merchant shipping and innocent merchant sailors, that's a provocation. What we're doing, what Prosperity Garden is all about, go on web, you can look at it. It's a defensive posture. It's a coalition of the willing of maritime nations coming together to try to protect international shipping, shipping that affects the global economy. Because in turn, what has happened is, so you're denying then that there has been an escalation since the Red Sea Patrol. This woman is essentially saying us defending shipping in the Red Sea is a provocation of Iran. That That's Al Jazeera's reporter. She used to be with a Canadian news service who is are arguing that the United States has escalated the situation in the Red Sea by defending the shipping lanes of ships. That's absurd propaganda from Al Jazeera. Good for John Kirby for not putting up with it. You know, he may be my favorite person in the Biden administration. Don't agree with him on everything, but man, at least he's willing to see the moral clarity in this issue that so few of them are willing to do. We'll be back tomorrow. See you all then. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.